0: Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part two of the Gospel of John, chapter 20. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Myrrh was used when Jesus was born the first time, and myrrh, he brings a hundred pounds of it when Jesus is going to be born again in the resurrection. There's a myrrh connection with Nicodemus. He gets it. Jesus answered, Amen, amen, I say to you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. What is born of flesh is flesh. What's born of spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed when I told you you must be born from above. And Nicodemus said, how can this happen? And Jesus said, you're the teacher of all Israel and you don't get it, Nicodemus? But now he gets it. It's a bridegroom spice. This is a new covenant. This is the marriage night. It's also a kingly burial spice. But he's not going to stay buried for long because he's going to rise like he said he would. And he must have remembered what Jesus said, that Moses, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So Nicodemus is beginning to figure out that riddle. Jesus will be born again, the first birth with myrrh, the second birth, the born again with myrrh. Enough myrrh fit for a king or a heavenly bridegroom in a new marital covenant. Nicodemus gets venerated by both the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church, one on August 2nd, one on August 3rd. There is a place where he and Joseph of Arimathea are honored together, and the Franciscans have erected a church in their patronage there in that town. It's very close to Jerusalem, and inside is a beautiful work by Titian showing Jesus being taken off the cross and Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea burying him and anointing his body. There's a Pieta by Michelangelo there, Jesus being taken off the cross. And we also know, tradition tells us, that the relics of Nicodemus were found along with Stephen the first martyr. Remember that? We've talked about that before, but He was a martyr and his bones were found with Stephen the martyr and Gamaliel, the rabbi who taught Paul, and Gamaliel's second son, Ababas. So in Roman Catholicism, he is considered a martyr. Both of them, Nicodemus and Arimathea, were both martyred and their feasts are celebrated on August 31st together as martyrs. So it's early on the first day of the week. It's still dark and Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. And Mary, called Magdala, whom seven demons have gone out of, we learn that in Luke. This is the same Mary. She's from a town called Magdala near Galilee. And we saw that she was standing at the foot of the cross this whole time. She's a faithful woman. She will not leave the side of Jesus. And it's the first day of the week. It's still dark. She's come to the tomb. I love that painting of her coming alone in the early morning. The sun's just coming up. She sees the stone has been removed from the tomb. She runs and goes to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved. And she said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they've laid him. And Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. And the two were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter. That's a nice little fact. John wants to get in there. (laughs) And the other disciple reached the tomb first. But in deference to Peter, the elder, the one who Jesus had given the keys in Matthew 16, he doesn't go in, he waits. John bent down to look in. He saw the linen wrappings there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus's head. The cloth was not lying with the linen wrappings. It was rolled up in a place by itself. The cloth that had been on the head of Jesus was not lying with the other wrappings. And we see old icons showing that, that the head scarf is separate. And what does that mean? We know that in John chapter 11, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, we saw that Lazarus came forth with linen cloths, and his feet and hands and his face were wrapped in a veil. His spices had wasted away. There was a stench, remember? And he had been in the hot sun for four days. He was dead as a doornail. He's wrapped in linens. And so if we take all the four Gospels together and the traditions, we can summate that there were a few cloths that were connected to Jesus. The cloth to clean the face, which is called the sidarium. The shroud, which is called the sindone. And the linen cloth. And different places claim to have these cloths. For instance, the Shroud of Turin claims that it is the linen that Jesus was wrapped in. And so much research, so much scientific research, and it's still developing ways they're testing and, and aging and all the, the different things. The breath-thin veil that covered his face has become known as the Volto Santa of Manopello. It's the cloth that was on his face. And it's housed in this church, Volto Santo di Manopello houses the holy face image and if you go there it only can be seen in certain light but it's an image on a piece of linen and it belongs to the Capuchin monks and some claim it to be the cloth that Veronica wiped the face of Jesus with then there's a third relic called the ceridium of Orvedo and it's the face cloth with small blood-stained linen And this was a common thing to do. And we even see it in 205, the face of John Paul II was covered with a linen at the time of his burial, a thin linen face cloth. And a Jesuit priest from Germany has studied this extensively. He's an art professor at the Pontifical Gregorian University. He thinks that they have found the veil of Veronica. So this goes round and round in the scientific world, is it, isn't it? But it got extra attention when Pope Benedict XVI visited it in September of 206. And it's in this monstrance, the veil. And if you dim the lights and light it a certain way, you can see it. And so I just want you to know that you know, those things are out there, different claims, and we don't know. But we do know that Simon Peter came. He was following him. He went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Now the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw, and he believed. That's John. That's John, and all it took for John was to see the tomb was empty, and he believed. He knew. He knew, because he remembered what Jesus had said. In all those scriptures we looked up tonight, every gospel, he said this was going to happen to him. When John saw it was gone, he knew. He knew. And for as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They don't have the Holy Spirit yet. They don't really know what this all means, but John believed just by seeing an empty tomb. The disciples returned to their homes. There it is, the empty tomb. The linens are there. If grave robbers would have come, which often that did happen, they would want to steal the linens because the linens were worth a lot. This is fine linen burial cloth, and so they would bleach it white and resell it to someone else who had a loved one die. So the cloths were left there. This wasn't grave robbers. Plus, the tomb was guarded. Pilate had had it sealed in one of the Gospels. I think it's Matthew. Pilate has it sealed and guarded because they say he's going to come and steal the body and claim that he was resurrected, and this is going to be even worse than before. Now we see Mary of Magdala standing outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she bends over to look inside the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head, the other at the feet, which reminds us of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant with the two cherubim, the two angels, And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. And she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? And supposing him to be what? The gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, please tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary... And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, teacher. At, at the moment he called her name, she knew it was him. It was him. It was Jesus. It was Rabboni. And Jesus said she wanted to grab onto him and hold him. And she said, Do not hold on to me. Do not hold on to me. Because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. He's basically saying there, we're siblings you're my sister. We have the same father, God. We are all siblings of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the firstborn of a new creation. He's the firstborn son. And he has made a new creation for us. We're related. We're his siblings. And he doesn't want her to hold on. And that Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons, healed of seven demons, she becomes the apostle to the apostles. And she's a woman and women weren't reliable witnesses you had to have two or three preferably male witnesses only in the hebrew jewish world and she's a woman and she's witnessed she's the first to talk to jesus in john's gospel and she becomes the apostle to the apostles it's amazing and mary magdalene went and announced to the disciples i have seen the lord i love that picture of her i have seen the lord think of the joy And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now many artists have painted this beautiful garden scene. And it's Mary seeing Jesus, talking to Jesus. Is it him, teacher, Rabboni? And then he says, touch me not. Don't touch me. Touch me not. Don't, don't, don't touch me. Don't touch me. There's a common thing. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. Touch me not. Don't touch me. Touch me not. Now, there's another reoccurring theme in these paintings. Jesus is holding something. There's a shovel, another shovel, a rake, a hoe, hmm. And they're in this beautiful garden. And he has a shovel, or a rake, or a hoe in his hand. Here he has a hat on to shield his face, (laughs) And, and a shovel in the other arm. So I ask you, who was the very, very first gardener in the Bible? Who's Jesus? The new Adam. What was the very first garden? Eden. The new Adam has removed all the thorns and thistles of sin because he destroyed sin on the cross. And the new Adam has undone the curse of the ground. Adam's body, Eve's body, all bodies were trapped in the ground. The ground was cursed. There was no way back to the beatific vision. There was no way back to the garden of Eden. But when he harrowed Hades on that holy Saturday in the tomb time, He freed mankind, this new gardener, this new Adam. He unbroke the curse. He ushered in the Father's greatest blessing, reversed the curse, freed all the souls, and made a way back to the Father. So you see the chasm. They lost the old garden, but he's going to get it back for them. He's going to crush the head of Satan on the cross. He's going to conquer death and rise from it. So he's the new Adam. Adam. And Paul really figured that out. In the Corinthians, he says, this is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Jesus Christ became a life-giving spirit by his cross. His cross is the new tree of life. And it's the way back to the Father. He's the way, the truth, and the life, the eternal life. So the old Adam, the new Adam, a new tree of life that all can eat from and live forever again without that stain of mortal sin. He's the new gardener, and we can eat from his new tree of life. I love that that image. Jesus' new tree of life is his cross. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. We heard that from Ezekiel. We heard that from Revelation. Water the leaves of the tree, his new tree, Eucharist. Eucharist heals you. The leaves of his tree are for eternal life. Come to me, eat, and you will live for how long? Forever. He wants to heal us with Eucharist. I want to talk about the icons from the Eastern Orthodox of Mary Magdalene. And she always has an Easter egg in her hand. And you think, oh, that's where we got the malted milk ball Easter eggs. (laughs) Well... Let's see why she has these. Every painting, either a white egg or a red egg, what's the story? Well, churches catechize us, and there is a Russian Orthodox church in Jerusalem at the Mount of Olives, and you can go there, and it is a beautiful church. You can't miss it because it has seven golden onion domes. Seven demons were driven out of Mary Magdalene, and it's beautiful, and if you walk up to the church which isn't open very often, you'll see an icon on the outside, and it's a church dedicated to the patronage of St. Mary Magdalene. It's a Russian church, Russian Orthodox, built by Tsar Alexander III. Uh, It was a tomb for a Russian duchess. They smuggled her body from Beijing and buried her there. And it's a church dedicated to Mary Magdalene, who is one of the myrrh-bearing women. And it's a gorgeous church, but there is a big painting on the wall, and paintings always catechize. I'll tell you what's going on in that painting. After the resurrection, of Jesus Christ, Mary of Magdalene used her relationship with some prominent persons in Jerusalem. She managed to arrive at a banquet held by the Emperor Tiberius Caesar, and she had the intention to publicly proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ in front of the Emperor. When the king passed by Mary, who was holding a boiled white egg in her hand, seeing him, she exclaimed to Tiberius, "Christ, Christ is risen!" And the emperor Tiberius laughed at her and said, the chance that Jesus was raised from the grave is as likely as the egg you hold in your hand to turn red. Boom! The egg turned red instantaneously. And at that very moment, the egg in her hand turned to red. And that's with that painting where she's showing him the red egg. And so the Eastern Orthodox to this day dye Easter eggs red. And so if you color Easter eggs this year, make sure you do a few red ones. The red is the blood of Christ. The egg is cracked open like the tomb is cracked open. The seal is broken and new life comes forward. So I think that's a beautiful tradition that Ukrainian eggs are gorgeous and they have true meaning, true religious meaning of new life and resurrection and that Christ is risen. Take that, Emperor Tiberius, right? So it's evening on that same day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. They're scared. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Now why does he want them to have shalom? Right off the bat, the first thing he says is shalom. Because I'm sure they were repenting. We left you, Lord. We didn't stay at the cross. We didn't believe. We left you. I ran away. I denied you three times. I ran away. I didn't stay. I, 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 peace peace and he breathes on them like God breathed on Adam in the garden when he gave him a life breathing spirit a soul he breathed into his nostrils he breathes on them the Holy Spirit and says peace and I'm going to send you and what's he sending him to there's 10 men in this room Judas is not there Matthew tells us he's committed suicide Thomas happened to not be there that night he didn't get the memo that they were meeting And when Jesus said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. They're getting a private Pentecost. These ten men, the Holy Spirit of the living God is being breathed on them. How powerful that must have been. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. That's what he said. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained power the authority and the ability to forgive sin this is huge this is a really 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 big deal i don't think we get how big this is the talmud notes that the hebrew numerical gematria for the word torah is 611 If you take the 611 commandments of Moses and add the first two that were spoken by God's own mouth, that's 613 commands. The Jews have the mitzvah, the law that says there are 613 things you must do. Well, we can't even do 10. So to do 613 is humanly impossible. And they don't have the Holy Spirit yet to help them. So they would wear the Tifilins and, and remind, the constant reminders, the box on the forehead, the, the prayer shawl with all the knots, each 613 knots, to remember all the laws to the letter of the law. I got to remember all these things. And once a year, they had the Day of Atonement where they could get rid of all their sin. If the high priest was holy enough and prepared enough, and if he didn't drop over dead when he went in to put the blood on the mercy seat, once a year, Israel only could be forgiven of all their sin. And only God could forgive sin. And God prescribed it to be this way to Moses step by step by step by step. This is the way that sin will be atoned for. Animal blood, animal sacrifice, a priesthood. That was the high priest of Israel only. But now we have a new eternal high priest for all mankind. And a new way to atone for sin. And we know it's true. In Matthew 9, Jesus healed a paralytic. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. His sins are forgiven. They were outraged. How can he say his sins are forgiven? How can he, only God, only God can, this man is blaspheming. And and Jesus said, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or stand up, take up your mat and walk. And over and over again, he would forgive sin when he's healing people. He would often just say, your sins are forgiven, and they'd be healed. It's a big deal because only God can forgive sin. So when he would do this, they, they, they couldn't understand. Why does he talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And some of the scribes were saying, this is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. How can he do this? And Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. So he has authority to forgive sin. And now he, the risen Christ, who's walked through locked doors, is giving them the authority on earth to forgive sin these 10 men, not everybody, these 10 men. It is a new priesthood, it is a new covenant. And Jesus will ascend to the right hand of God in 40 days because he has atoned for all sin permanently, forever, for all people of all time. He's gonna take his permanent seat on the mercy seat at the right hand of God when He sat down. But we're in a transition between Mosaic law and the new covenant of grace, the new covenant. It's an old law and a new law, an old priesthood and a new priesthood. The old priesthood, it was a continual, 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 continual sacrifice. Blood, blood, blood. Sin's a permanent problem. That was a temporary solution. But Jesus is the final and perfect all time, all people, all perfect blood sacrifice. So an old covenant, an old priesthood, a new covenant, a new priesthood. When Jesus went into the upper room, after he had said peace, after he had forgiven their sins, he breaks bread, and they recognize him also in the breaking of the bread. What a night that must have been, Easter Sunday night. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We say it at every Mass. It's a final, perfect, all-time, perfect blood sacrifice. Only God had the power and authority to forgive sins, and he has given them the power and authority to forgive sins. So they become God's representative on earth to forgive sin. That's how God set it up. If only God can forgive sin, then they're going to stand in person of God, this priesthood. And we call it in persona Christi, in person of Christ. And a priest in persona Christi he he acts therefore as God. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is God. If he's in person of Christ, he's in person of God. And the sacraments are effective. They give grace that signify because the true minister of the sacrament is always Jesus Christ. They're just in person of him, but he is working through them. They are his representative on earth. It's called in persona Christi, and it's in every sacrament that the priest administers. So when we go to confession, we're telling the priest our sin, but we're really telling Jesus through the person of the priest who is sitting in person of Christ. And so... That's how it works. Christ is saying mass. Christ is forgiving our sins through a priesthood. This is how he set it up. And a holy priest can be such a beautiful vessel of Christ and his mercy and his forgiveness. Like John Vianney was a phenomenal confessor that had lines way, 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 way miles long because he was so Christ. The Pope says, do not be afraid of confession. That's a quote from him. This is him speaking. Even I go to confession every 15 days because the Pope is also a sinner. And the confessor listens to what I tell him, and he advises me and absolves me because we are all in need of this forgiveness. So there's an old covenant, a new covenant, an old priesthood, a new priesthood, and this is how God set it up. Now, one priest wasn't there that night, Thomas called Didymus, twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And the other disciples said, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of his nails in his hands and put my finger into the nail marks and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. That's the incredulity of St. Thomas. Do you know anyone like that? (laughs) And so Jesus heard that desire. And a week later... The disciples are in that same room again, the doors are locked, and Jesus comes through locked doors again in their midst, and he says, peace, be with you, because <laughs> he wants to give Thomas peace and forgiveness and shalom, rest in him. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, bring your hand, put it right into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believe Thomas. And Thomas answered him and said, my Lord and my there's no stronger doubt in scripture, and there's no stronger proclamation that Jesus is God than Thomas's. It's the strongest declaration in the scriptures, my Lord and my God. He knows it. He knows it. He knows it. And Jesus said, have you come to believe because you've seen me? And then he said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's you. Now, why? Why, why, why does Thomas get a, do that? Because to mirrors. Touch me not. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. But to Thomas. Come on in. Get all the way in. Just enter my wounds. Enter my side, Thomas. The priesthood. Thomas is Jesus. My wounds are your wounds. Come into me. Let me come into you. You are my representative on earth. You are Christ. You are a priest, Thomas. I'm sending you with my gospel. Enter into me. You're my minister. You're my priest. And Paul understood this mystery because Paul says to the Colossians, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ on behalf of his body, which is the church, of which I am a minister. Or some translations say, of which I am a priest in accordance with God's stewardship given to me to bring completion for you, the word of God, the mystery hidden from the ages and from generations past. So priests are called into the suffering of Christ in a special way because Christ is the head and the church is the body. Priests will lay down everything. They will lay down a wife. They will lay down a family. They will lay down everything to bring us Christ in the sacraments. They're the only one who can transubstantiate the Eucharist. They're the only one who can forgive us of our sins. They're Christ representative, his agent on earth. The priesthood is so, so, so important. And that's why I think Thomas can come inside Christ's wounds and share them intimately like that because he's Christ. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And he was martyred. He went to India. He was speared in four different directions. And he died for our Lord Jesus Christ. And he had no doubt who he was dying for. And that he would one day rise with him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you for your Apostle John and what he has recorded for us that we might believe. We thank you for Thomas and moments when we have doubt that we can turn to him and know that he knew without a shadow of a doubt that you were who you said you were. Thank you. We thank you for your priesthood that can bring us Jesus and all the sacraments and healing in the Eucharist and confession and the anointing of the sick and the, the myrrh and the chrism oil and all the way you work together, Lord, throughout the ages to Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of everything. That was part two of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.